All right, everybody. So today on the podcast, we have Kasim Hansen. How are you doing, man? I am well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You had reached out about, you know, there's been a lot recently on Doug Brignoli and about the information he's been putting out. So we're going to dive into all of that. Uh, but you have a pretty big following in your own right. And so before we dive into that, can you just give people a little bit of your background? Yeah, so I am an educator uh, in the trainer space, mainly focused on educating trainers and coaches. And we teach biomechanics, program design, assessment, all of that stuff. And, you know, my brief history is, you know, I went through school like most people and thought that I was going to change the world from test tube to athlete and quickly Mm -hmm. realized that there's a lot of red tape and a lot of processes to to go through that process and started to appreciate the hands-on aspect of coaching a little bit more, went more into private education. And then, you know, a hundred grand worth of private courses later, buying my own lab and starting my own company. And here we are teaching trainers across the globe. Awesome. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I've been in this space, you know, well, really as far as a podcast three years now, but as far as like my own interest in it, reading the forums and YouTube and all that stuff for many years, I mean, 15, 16 years. And you realize, or at least what I've realized since the podcast is that even with being around so long, you do kind of find certain bubbles that you stick in. And like, Mm -hmm. so I remember like, I met somebody at the gym and they said they were super into fitness. And I was like, Oh, so, you know, Lane Norton. And they had no idea who Lane Norton was. And he's a pretty big name. It's not like he has millions of followers, but he's a pretty big name. And I just remember thinking at the time, like, how could you not know Lane Norton? Because that's somebody who I had watched for like 10 years, you know? And uh, I bring that up because your name is one that I've heard more and more in the last, I would say two years. And then especially the last year, um, we mentioned the mutual contact, Brian Borstein, um, but Abel Chabai, I think you recently talked with him. He'd mentioned you a number of times. Um, so I haven't, admittedly, I haven't seen too much of your stuff, but everybody who's told me about you has said positive things. So I know I need to kind of dive into it a little bit more, um, but it's interesting to hear about your actual background there. Well, hopefully this will be a good introduction. Yeah, right, right. So um, so we were talking a little bit about Doug and I had Doug on the podcast, it's gotta be a couple months ago now. Um, and I know he's obviously been around for a very long time and he competed many years ago. And even I think, think somewhat recently good physique. Um, but there's definitely been controversy over his, I guess, what he is purporting to be the best way to lift. And I know when I had him on my own podcast, there were certain things that I questioned and, and certain rebuttals I would have. Although there is a fine line, I think, as a, a host between, you know, you know, you want to maybe push back, but you don't want to debate the, the guests so much. So I considered having him back on um, to discuss some of these points. But I know that you have, I think, quite a few points that you disagree with him on. So I don't know if you have maybe like an order that you want to start with or you want to address. Um, I mean, we can start with kind of like foundationals and with with most people in the industry, like, you know, really like once you get to a certain level, most people it's like, well, it's a degree disagree. And sometimes it's like, we all agree on the same principles, but then the, the nuances and application, those principles or how important those things are, or where maybe the, the most divergent um, thoughts are. So if we can agree that, you know, one of the goals of, of Doug's methods is Doug is trying to promote being efficient with your training. Right. And he defines efficiency as trying to load the muscle the most with the least amount of external load, if, if we want to really simplify that. Um, and I think that's a, that's a valid pursuit in that, you know, 
if we're trying to if we're trying to target a tissue, we want to be efficient, but we also need to be realist and understand that there that's not like a, a, an infinite point, meaning that the goal is not to figure out how to load my spine zero or how to load everything else zero. It's really just how do I make the thing that I'm targeting biased enough that this is actually the thing that is going to cause failure in that exercise. It is the limiter. It's where the majority of the stimulus goes. And the degree that you need to bias or isolate something may vary on the goal. So in terms of the principle of like having the knowledge to be able to say, Hey, if I take this person's squat and we heel elevate them, that might move it towards a little bit more quad bias. But if we move them to hack squat, that might be a little bit more, but none of those will be as biased as a leg extension. And just understanding that principle, I think is, is very valuable, but thinking that, well, because a leg extension or a sissy squat only moves the knee and every lower body push also loads the hip that somehow that the complete knee isolation exercises are the only good ones or they're the vastly superior ones. I think that's, we'll say lacking nuance and context for sure. Um, and definitely, you know, isn't always going to be the case for the goal. And, you know, while we're on that subject, I would be like, Hey, why not both? Right. Why not do hack squats and leg extensions, you know, or, or whatever it may be. Um, so I, you know, I try and steel man that position as much as possible because we teach very similar things in terms of biomechanics. We teach like, okay, this is a muscle's fully lengthened and fully shortened position. And basically if we want to train a muscle, it makes sense that if we wanted to target it more specifically, we would try and move in a path that was closest to its, you know, from its lengthened to shortened position, not the same as, as origin insertion. And we can, you know, get into where there's some issues with that thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also tell people like, this, this exists in the continuum, meaning that if I show you how to do an exercise that really moves in the path of the clavicular pec fibers, an exercise that doesn't do that perfectly is not zero clavicular pec, right? Or it's not inherently bad because there may be somebody that's like, look, I need one chest exercise. So I need it to do a a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And there might be somebody else. that's like, no, I'm going to do six chest exercises this week. And so it's probably more important that their exercises selection not be redundant, that they'd actually, you know, all of their exercises have specific complementary goals. Um, So from that principal perspective of, Hey, we should know how to do things more efficiently. And we should be cognizant of how to shift the resistance or shift the work that's being done in an exercise, you know, towards the goal that we want, whether that be isolation or whether that be spreading the load out amongst the tissue. Um, but where I start to disagree with Doug and probably the questions that I get the most, cause I'm in the education space. So we have a lot of mm-hmm. students and those students, you know, they've taken some physics, they've taken some anatomy, they've taken mechanics, or they've actually taken um, our actual courses um, will be one is just the way that Doug kind of calculates the physics to make some yeah. of his arguments. And I mean, there really isn't a, a way to butter it up that it's, it's just wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so the example that uh, is readily available on YouTube um, would be when he compares the squat, he looks at the tibia angle. Um, and as he does the same thing on the dip, And basically he's using the tibia angle and using the percentage of degrees, basically from zero to 90, the percentage of that and qualifying what he uses as a magnitude or magnification, I think is the the way he says it, that it's like, okay, if the, if the shin is 30 degrees forward, then he says that that has a magnification of 33%. 
And I think the point that he would be trying to make would be is, is that maybe the, the knee had moved maybe like a third of the way as far forward as it could go. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, like if, you, if you've been educated in physics, you know, we would not calculate that distance. Like we would use what's called a moment arm, which is basically just the distance from the axis to where, you know, the perpendicular line of the resistance. So in a squat line of resistance is basically wherever the center of your mass is, that includes your barbell, your torso, your head, all of that. It's just a straight line towards the ground. And so if you want to know how much load is going on your quad, it's really simple. The further your knee moves horizontally away from that point, the more it's working. But because our body moves in arcs, uh, we can't use like a tibia angle as a way of calculating that, right? We would literally just look, look at the distance and say, okay, well, what percentage of, you know, the femur length or whatever, like, cause really, and something like a squat, we have to balance, meaning center mass is always going to be over midfoot. Mm-hmm. So our goal is, is like, Hey, if there's a strategy for me to get that knee further away, which in most cases is a heel elevation or switching to an exercise that doesn't require balance, like a hack squat or a pendulum squat or something like that. Those are ways that we can increase force around the knee. Now, the way Doug does the math, unfortunately, uh, it's wrong. So he's looking at the first 30% of the tibia moving forward. We move in arcs. So if you imagine the top of a circle, right? And you were to be like at the very top of a circle and you were to start sloping down, you move mostly horizontally, right? So when we move in an arc, we don't move in the same like, you know, perspective, every degree that we go in that arc, we actually would move horizontally more. So when we're at 30 degrees, we're actually getting closer to about 50% of as far as we could go forward, you know, so when we actually like do the math on Doug's actual picture that he uses, and I'm thinking about posting some images of this on my YouTube, if, you know, if I can, if we can coordinate those, that those links could be available for you guys. So you have visuals for this, because yeah. it's always hard to talk about this stuff. You know, yeah. that's very sure. visually dominant, but it's off by, I believe in that example by about 25%. And then he does the same thing for the tricep dips where he says, well, since the forearm is at a 10 degree angle, which is 11% of 90 that he says, well, okay, that's, you know, 11% magnification. And because again, as an arc starts, it moves more horizontal and then it moves more vertical as it becomes closer to horizontal. That's so horizontally dominant that it's actually off by almost double. So actually the amount of load that we get on the tricep in a dip is twice as much what Doug claims. And the amount that we're getting in that squat example is about, you know, 150% of what Doug is claiming. Now he's still moving in the right direction in those examples, but when you start fudging numbers that are off by an order magnitude of hundred percent or 50%, mm-hmm. right. And you're making claims like this is, this is absolute truth because it's physics. I'm like, well, I believe in physics too, but I believe in physics. It's based off of solid math. Right. Um, so that's, that's my, like, those are some of the questions I get firstly is like, okay, there's something wrong with these calculations. But then the next question is, but is the thing that he's trying to say still accurate, despite the math being wrong. And that tends to be then the follow-up question, because I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair just to go around and like picking, you know, apart people's math, just like, Hey, if somebody says something really good, um, but they make a grammatical error in it, then I don't think that invalidates their argument per se. Right. So same thing here. So I, this well, is, I would also not to like, um, like I agree with that general principle. However, 
I, I would say if somebody was trying to provide me, like going to the grammar example, if somebody was trying to provide me an intellectual argument and their grammar was just horrible, at some point it would invalidate it to me. And yeah. if somebody's entire argument is, well, this is physics and science and math, and they aren't doing basic calculations correctly, that inherently just invalidates a lot of the arguments and makes me more suspect about future arguments. I absolutely agree that it, it's damaging to the credibility, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't oppose somebody on those factors alone, right? Sure. If that makes sense. So it's like, yeah. if, I, if I was like, hey, what he's saying makes sense, but because he made a mistake, I'm not going to just default to like, well, but he must be wrong because he made right. a mistake in his math or, or spelling or whatever, right? Um, if that were the case, I would be wrong a lot because... Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't spell check like the majority of the posts that I write and I have fat thumbs and I'm walking the dog and whatever. So just like, yeah. So maybe I'm biased because I'm like, just, just please forgive me for being completely negligent in most of the stuff I post on social media. But anyway, um, so there's the math that's wrong, but then there's, it's like, okay, but is there something to say that there is a limit to how much we can, you know, bias the resistance towards the quads and the squat and that principle, I'd say like, well, yes. So if we look at a leg extension, obviously you're not loading the spine, right? So if that was a goal, that's fine. But I would say you shouldn't have to worry about not loading or to take the spine to zero. I would say as long as the spine isn't loading too much, the squat is still fine. As long as the quads are the thing that is actually going to failure, meaning that when you get to those effective reps that your back stays in this position it's supposed to, your hips stay where they're supposed to, when you just stop being able to do the exercise because you fatigue your quads, then you accomplish the quad stimulus. Now you could make the programming decision of say, Hey, in two days, I'm going to do a hip dominant leg workout. So I might choose exercises that are particularly easier on the hips so that they're is no fatigue rolling over, then you could make the argument of like, well, maybe I should use a hack squat or a pendulum squat or a leg extension as an exercise so that I could have that programming. But to say that you're not getting a good quality of stimulus or that an exercise is inherently inefficient, if it includes, includes anything else, I think is an error in scale in terms of how much that matters. Another aspect is when we look at the nuances of what's going on from a neurological and mechanical perspective, if we could stick with this example, is there is a different environment when we have the foot on the ground versus when the foot is mobile and say like a leg extension. Um, and there's a different pelvis situation when we are being loaded actually versus like having to like hold our torso weight up like in a sissy squat, right? So in addition to just like kind of moving around these physics things where we can draw lines on people and moment arms and be like, oh, look, that's more whatever. We also have to consider like, as we're making these changes, are we making them just better on paper and losing maybe say stability or loadability of these exercises, because you take something like a hack squat, for example, that is extremely stable and you can just load the crap out of it. That offers benefits that you can't tangibly get in a sissy squat variation, if that makes sense. Right. So when we're looking at how do we accomplish stimulus, it's not just how do we find a way to leverage the weight on the muscle, but it's also how do we provide the body with the most optimal situation to be able to utilize that muscle without any limitations, right? Because anytime we have less stability, 
that complicates the movement. We lose neural drive, we lose some force output, you know, and it, it creates the opportunity and inconsistency with reps and other things could fail first and stuff like that. So there's a lot to consider when we're talking about, well, what makes a good exercise outside of just does the weight, you know, on paper look like it would challenge this muscle a lot, or does it, can I do this with, with less weight? So to recap there, and sorry, if that was a little rambly is I agree with the principles of understanding like, Hey, how can, how can we shift the scales across the body in terms of what's being loaded so we can be more specific? Um, But I don't necessarily agree to one, the extent that kind of, that Doug takes that. And I think it puts a little too much of a fear mindset and an absolutist mindset of like, well, okay, we have to do these exercises that are, you know, very isolated. And if you, you know, put any weight on your back, then you're going to get spinal cancer and die. Right. Um, That's, you know, and I think that's a bad message to send to people because for some people, I mean, I mean, a squat might be a great exercise for them at that particular point, because they might be at the point where it's like, look, I can grow quads, glutes, adductors, and all these things with very minimal stimulus because I'm a beginner. So why wouldn't I, you know, get all that benefit from doing them all at once, but then you might have an advanced trainee that needs to put a lot more stress into that tissue has a lot more years of training on both, you know, their body, you know, and their you know, in terms of joint, you know, in terms of their joints, but also just muscular adaptations, it's like, okay, your training now needs to be more specialized, right? You know, um, same thing if we're looking at people using different frequencies and stuff like that. So, I mean, our brand is called N of One, right? And it's kind of, you know, it's on the moniker of the research, like, you know, like, okay, yeah, look at everybody as an N of One. Um, and so that's kind of how I think of things is like, if you can understand these principles and how to shift them towards a goal, they could all be valuable. Um, what I think, but, oh, go ahead. Um, I think it's interesting because so one thing I, I think Doug does appropriately is he will say, even though he's got his method, he'll say, you know, it's not that the other stuff doesn't work. Mm-hmm. However, I also find that a lot of times people will do that, that they'll say, oh, this stuff works, but like this is better, which really appeals to, I think, a lot of the neuroticism in lifters and like bodybuilders where they think, oh, I want to be, I want to do everything perfectly. Right. And so, yeah. And, and not only that. I want to do it. I want to be able to say I'm doing things better than everybody else. So I'm going to take all the unnecessary supplements because I want the 1% and whatever. And so um, I think Doug's, at least my understanding, this is three issues. If we stick with a squat is the spinal loading, uh, the ineffectiveness for the rec fem and the, uh, I guess the, the inefficiency, he calls it, which I kind of, clump that into the other two because if you say even if you even if his math was correct you say oh well you need this much weight to get the same stimulus well that's very easily solved because you have an infinite amount of weight you could always add that's a problem because of the first one of the spinal loading in his Mm -hmm. argument so that is my understanding of his major points against say a squat he does then say well look like all of these bodybuilders have built these great physiques and i'm not saying you can't do it but this is the more efficient way to get there which i think is where I would want your, I guess, perspective, obviously that's in part where you've been touching on, but more just this idea that, because I don't think he would argue against what you're saying that you could use these multiple things, maybe not entirely. Um, but he seems to have this idea that like, for instance, on like the lats that like this specific kind of, I forget what he even calls it, but almost like a lat pull in is like the ideal way to do it. And I would not only question if it's, the same, but is it even, well, yeah, that, that is what I was questioning. Is, is it even as good? Because I just have a, I understand that his argument is like, well, there's not a lot of 
there haven't been enough years of bodybuilders doing this stuff. I just have a hard time believing that you're going to build the same level of musculature at all. Because I think some people would say, oh, well, it's all about what you want to do. Okay. You can do this method or this method. Intuitively, I feel like it just would not even work as well to do some of that. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Like yeah. some of these, they just don't seem stimulative enough in some cases. So, all right. So let me just answer this really blunt. And then if you want to go into the weeds, then we can, yeah. you can just direct me down there. Right. So to stick to, to finish the squat thing, and we're talking about hypertrophy perspective, like, okay, I absolutely don't think that you could get, achieve the same hypertrophy over time, only doing sissy squats and leg extensions as you could incorporating heavy lower body pressings, like not necessarily doesn't have to be squat. I would definitely make the argument of like, I think a hack squat and a pendulum squat, like those type of machines are, are better options if you have them. But if you didn't have option, you didn't have those, I think heel elevated squats, you know, for quads would still be a really good, important tool to, to include there versus just doing sissy squats and leg extensions. In regards to the rec fem thing, um, I think, there's a little bit of uh, misunderstanding in terms of what it takes to get that muscle involved. And if we know it's involved in the leg extension, basically to get that muscle involved, you don't have to have the hip in a stretch position. You just have to have the body in a position where essentially the rec fem is not limited by what's going on at the hip. So as long as the hip doesn't have to move, it's stable. That gives the rec fem basically permission to con contribute to knee extension as much as you want, which is why it gets trained better in a leg extension than a squat. But I don't think that if you're doing leg extensions that you need to sub your squat for sissy squats, I think you probably get the rec fem stimulus enough in there. And if you wanted to do a length of exercise, I wouldn't do it as a sissy squat. I would do, you know, something else, but you're also going to get it in say back foot elevated, you know, Bulgarian split squat type things. Um, you could even do a, like a lying leg extension either on a, like an old, like Nautilus machine one, or one of the cheap body master things that you can buy at Walmart. Right. <laughs> um, or a multi-hit machine, which a Doug really likes, like you can do a, basically the equivalent of a standing leg extension in the multi-hip, which is basically doing a leg extension in a, hip extended position. So there's, I think there's better ways to achieve that than the sissy squat. Cause the sissy squat is limited by a lot of like, it's got stability limitations, loading limitations that are ultimately going to limit your output by all means, because it's an exercise that kind of like keeps a little tension on there. You're going to feel it. It's one of those exercises that's just going to make you burn, but yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually accomplishing more stimulus or mechanical tension. It just means that, you know, you get a little, it's a little harder to get blood in and out while you're doing those type right. of movements. Like it's a quote unquote, as bodies bullish would say, like a pump movement. So well, that's what's turn, mechanistically, like, how would you, like, if you were to say somebody, well, and I agree with you, you know, I think somebody who was progressively adding weight over years on let's say a leg press a hack squat um you know a heel elevated squat they're going to build more mass than somebody doing let's say just a sissy squat and a leg extension mm -hmm. but mechanistically why do you think that is is it simply the amount of overload you're able to produce is it the lack of stability in the sissy squat yeah so it's a combination of lack of stability and lack of ability to load in addition to, you know, pressing movements, because we load the gastroc, which is a great knee stabilizer, right? And that's, that's essentially how we're designed. Like we're, our quads, our body has evolved to contract the quads on impact with the ground, 
right? So we're able to put more drive through the quads in something where our foot is in contact and we're pressing into the ground and not so much something like a sissy squat where we're pushing forward or a leg extension where our foot is free, right? Now, I think the leg extension gives us a utility that we don't get any in any of the pressing movements because it's the only way to really challenge the quads when you have the knee fully extended mm -hmm. and it's the only way to completely isolate that so i think it's really complementary to those other pressing motions but i think the sissy squat is inferior to the majority of those pressing motions and it's important to think of when we're talking about overall hypertrophy and we talk about the quads you know let's look at all of the other quadriceps and think like well if we know that the preponderance of research basically says that length and position exercises tend to perform a little bit better in terms of hypertrophy, likely, likely because of the passive structures that are getting involved in terms of tighten and whatnot that are kind of contributing to that overall mechanical tension stimulus. If you look at the way that Doug does the sissy squat, it doesn't lengthen the other quadriceps and you can't really, like if you, if you do hip extension and then try and bend your knee, you can't fully stretch the other quads. So basically you're making the bulk of the quads a slave to one muscle in terms of the range of motion and stimulus at that point. So it's like, we probably should have an exercise for the other quads that's really, really good since that's the majority of the thigh and not just only do exercises that work the rec fem. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, that was one of the things I thought was interesting because I, I had heard him and I was surprised to hear him say this. I had heard him say how, and this was like a tricep example, but he said something along the lines of, you know, you can't get one of the heads of the muscle to pull harder than the other. And not only can, I believe you can emphasize certain heads depending on like different mm -hmm. exercises, but you also had like I, some studies, which he kind of dismissed on the podcast, I believe some newer studies are even showing within a given head, you're actually seeing localized muscle growth, depending on, you know, I think if it was like more in the stretch position, do you know what studies I'm talking about? A few recent ones? Yeah. So, I mean, but the, those are two different things, right? Like, so re regional hypertrophy within a muscle is we're just talking about basically where sarcomeres are being added within, within that tissue, whether they're right. distal or whether they're more medial. Right. Um, and likely the mechanism there is a lot of that tension that is that a lot of the passive tension contributors that happen with those stretch positions, right? Um, because you'll see a difference in the way panation angle changes in response to those two. And so that those two things go together in order for panation angle to change in a muscle, it would have to add sarcomeres at the long end. So whether you're looking at research on change in, um, in terms of panation angle, or if you're, or if they're actually just measuring the start, like the same thing is happening. Like the fiber has to be getting longer mm -hmm. and that's just a process of how the body would organize, you know, when it's getting stressed in those different positions, that's absolutely true. And in terms of the different heads, that's essentially what like our bread and butter for what we do in our lab is looking at how do we actually bias the different heads of muscles, but outside of what we do, um, because I mean, our research is not really published. So I don't like to, to use it exclusively, but you can look at like, I think the best example I like to use is the gastroc, right? Like how similar are the heads of the gastroc? And I did a, uh, I did a research review with the Chris Barricat, like end of 2019, I think, um, where they did that, you know, the study of the toes in toes out toes straight mm -hmm. forward. Right. And they actually got meaning like significant difference in hypertrophy on the different heads using those different techniques. Right. 
And if you're going to tell me that, wait, so we can bias the different heads of the gastroc that are very, very similar, but we yeah. can't bias the heads of the bicep and the tricep that are much more divergent. Uh, well, yeah, the it has different like, origins, right? Yeah. I mean, the yeah. long head is origin. It's on the uh, scapula, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then the lateral head, um, and this is what, like, there's levels to anatomy. Uh, so like the lateral head also crosses the shoulder kind of. And what I mean by that is so in the, in the, in the sides of the leg and the thigh, you have these little, uh, connective structures. They're called intermuscular septums. And essentially what they do is they help muscles kind of share a common origin insertion and also cinch in with the fascia. And so what that, what we look at in the arm is basically, and you like, if, if you've seen a bodybuilding show or just anybody lean, if you've ever just flexed in the tricep and you see the look of that lateral head of the tricep, you're like, wow, it looks like it goes and it attaches like to this long thing. It doesn't look like it goes to a point. Well, and that's because it doesn't, and it attaches to this long strip into the humerus, but also into this septum that runs up the side of the arm that then basically ties it into the posterior deltoid complex. So basically it's a way of almost creating like a soft merger of those two tissues so that they have a bit of a tug on each other. Right. Which means that, well, I actually, like if I position my shoulder differently, I will get different magnitudes. If we like measure EMG, for example, in that lateral head of the tricep versus the other heads of the tricep. Right. And that's kind of, that's, that's basically kind of what we do, you know, in our lab is, is we're trying to investigate, okay, what are the, what are the two extreme ranges of motion for this muscle? And then if we do an exercise in between there, can we then use tangible data like blood oxygen and EMG to actually show that, okay, it does look like if we do this position that we prefer preferentially bias that tissue. And then the next step is, can we correlate that with what we see in the research hypertrophy wise? And then the far distance step will hopefully be that somebody will then take and put that into long, long form studies that uh, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to have to do all of them <laughs> for the whole body. Like we're going to, we're going to need some help from the other labs uh, how, uh, at some point. How individual would you say, your recommendations are, I mean, not to get like too deep into it, but I, it's been a while since I've opened an anatomy textbook, but I, I remember there was a cadaver study that showed, you know, like if I'm remembering correctly, generally the triceps are innervated by the radial nerve. And in this study, it showed some significant proportion of the, uh, of the long heads were actually innervated by the axillary nerve. And there was an unexpected finding, at least at the time. I'm just wondering like if, if something like that could be so individual when it comes to actual exercise selection, are you finding that like for even for a given head, if you're trying to emphasize on somebody, maybe that's going to be different than how you'd emphasize on somebody else. Or is it more just like, Hey, this exercise is best for this head growth. All right. So I'll give you my honest opinion on both the variations that we see in innervation and also the variations that we see in anatomy studies that will be like, oh, what percentage of people does the lat attach to the scapula and what percentage it doesn't? Um, what I would say is I think, I think a lot of the older stuff, especially was just from crude dissection. So I think we, like I tend to bias my opinion towards the newest research because sure. 
a lot of the old dissection stuff was very crude. They were just cutting through stuff, not knowing what it was and whatnot. And so I think some of that variation just came down to human error. That's, that's my honest opinion, having been in a lot of cadaver labs and yeah. having, you know, done a lot of this research and my, my colleagues that actually work with me on the biomechanics research standpoint, like that tends to be the consensus with all of them is like, you know what, if they say this is in like, you know, whatever, like 80% of people or whatever it is, it's probably that way in a hundred percent of people, but like, but 20% of the people cutting through it just, just <laughs> were not doing uh, a good enough job, especially when you consider that a lot of this research is done on extremely atrophied individuals, mm. right? I mean, we're, you know, like, it's not like they're cutting, cutting guys open after they walk Athletes, off the Olympia stage right, or right. anything, right? I yeah. mean, so, and if you've done these labs, I'm, I'm not trying to be hard on these, like it's extremely difficult and delicate work. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so if you've never done this yourself, you may not have the respect of how hard it is to separate layers of fascia and to find some of these fine nerve endings and stuff like that. I mean, the big stuff, yeah, that's super easy. Right. But that's like, you know, okay, the word blocking coloring book level stuff, the nuanced details, that's where it's like, okay, especially in somebody with very small muscle mass, you know, that may have been suffering, you know, chronic inflammation and scarring all over in their body for like the last 20 years of their life. Mm -hmm. And then you have them and you're, you're trying to discern all that tissue after they've been soaked in chemicals. (laughs) It's not as easy as you think. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So that's, that's, that's my honest opinion there. So my, I would say, so in terms of the tricep, I do believe that we have two separate sets of innervation for the long head, the lateral head. And, uh, and I believe the, the lateral head, uh, comes down into the, uh, to the medial portion as well. Right. Okay. So I, I believe, I believe there's that separation and it's interesting how you would think that anatomy is a science that should just be settled because, you know, the human body hasn't changed over whatever years. Yeah. But the thing is, is that our ability to look at things, our technology and our precision and, you know, the questions that we're asking has changed, you know? So it's just like what in 2016, they found a fifth quad, right? It's not that it, we just, we didn't evolve a fifth quad. It's right. always been there, right? <laughs> like you can look, you can look at bodybuilding shows from like the eighties and you can be like, I can see his tensor vastus intermediates. I can see it right there. Right. But again, it goes back to, it's like, but I probably wouldn't be able to see that on the cadaver of an 85 year old, yeah. right? You know, unless I, unless I already knew it was there and was looking for it probably very easily overlooked that that was there. Right. So there's a lot of subtleties in this that I think, you know, um, you know, we can always use more research and we can always use better data and better studies and yeah. whatnot. And I think in that term, we def- definitely just lean towards the newer stuff. Well, how do you feel about in terms of actually targeting a muscle, like for hypertrophy in terms of the individuality there, for instance, again, I know we could say this exercise is great for this head versus this head, but among individuals, do you, does it get to that specific at your, like, you know, seminars or anything like that with, where you'd say, this exercise is better for this person's long head, but this other person needs this for their long head. So because we use anatomical landmarks, when we teach people how to do the exercises and what positions they should be in visually, if you look at two different people, there might be subtle variations in the arm angle, but in relationship to their own anatomy, it will be consistent across the individuals. If that makes sense. Sure. Right. So it's just like everybody stays in relationship to their own body and can train the same tissue. But 
different bodies will look slightly different, which is one of the reasons I don't like to say like, well, okay, this degree of bench press is good for this. And I'm like, well, the bench is irrelevant. It depends on how your body actually lines up when you're laying at that angle, you know, your rib cage angle and your arms and everything. Right. So it's like, we take the approach of like, we use, we use machines and stuff like that. But the way we determine if it's effective is actually looking at the individual person and looking at how it works with their anatomy. And then we just try and position them in a machine so that whatever the machine's motion is matches that. Or if we're using dumbbells or cables, then it's pretty simple. We know like, okay, for you, your arm should move like this. Now just move the cable as high as it needs to be so that the cable loads that, right? Or adjust Mm -hmm. the bench angle so that that's you, but it might be a different setting for different individuals. Do you feel that, you know, because this actually kind of is similar to how Doug relates it. He'll say, well, you know, if, if this exercise is a 10 out of 10, then, you know, sure, you can use a 7 out of 10, but you've got to do a lot more of it to get similar results. Would you say that, you know, let's take, take somebody who's doing everything, not everything, but like, you know, they're working their chest suboptimally and you see how they're doing it and you would say maybe it's 70% as good as what you would recommend. Do you think that individual over enough time and with enough training volume would still eventually get their pecs to about as big as they could be? Again, obviously this is assuming proper like nutrition and everything, or do you think that implementing the appropriate exercises that you talk about, you're actually going to get growth that you just otherwise could not achieve with a suboptimal exercise? Well, we get at, I got to ask like, well, how specific do you want to be? Cause if you're like, Hey, could a person just grow pecs versus can a person grow this specific division of their pec, right? Like those are two different degrees of specificity, right? So it's like, okay, you know, if somebody chooses a decline exercise uh, and be like, well, is, is that still chest compared to another chest exercise? I'd be like, yes. But if I say like, well, okay, well, how about a decline exercise compared to a clavicular pec exercise that like comes almost in the opposite direction that it like comes up and across versus something mm-hmm. that goes down and across. I'm like, well, yeah, it's going to take a lot of decline pressing to get stimulus in the upper pecs, right? It's going to be a very, very poor way of doing that. So the answer at that specificity is level or, or, or is no, but the answer, if we're just saying, well, is it, can they still grow something in their chest? Well, if we make it that general, I could be like, well, yeah, they just happen to be growing a different portion of their chest. I well, of course to- they grow something. I, I'm talking about, would they ever achieve maximal growth? And, and again, of course, the question, how bad are we going to allow this theoretical exercise to be right? I mean, yeah. Right. Enough, you know, one third partial rep, then yeah, they'd probably never achieve it. But so this is the way I try and illustrate it. I'm sorry if I'm leaning away from like there. Um, is I try to look at uh, or teach this as like threshold. So let's say that you have exercise selection as one category, right? And you know, you can add technique as a separate one or combine that or whatever. But basically, it's the exercise and how we're doing it, right? And then the next thing would be the effort, right? Like how much effort are we putting into it? And then we got like volume and frequency, which is that kind of quantity thing and then recovery. So if you look at those as like, okay, those are four things um, that go into getting a result. And basically there's a threshold of each of those that you need for the other ones to even matter. Right. So if we take it to the absurd degree, right. If you don't eat, you don't sleep. Well, then it really doesn't matter what exercises that you pick. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, If you choose squats and your goal was biceps, well, then it doesn't matter how much you eat or how much you, you know, what your volume or like, no. So it's like, everything has to be good enough. Um, 
And, but once you hit that threshold across all the, like across the board on all the things, there is a point of diminishing returns is, is you get from the, like the base threshold to optimal, right? So it's like, if we're like, okay, the bottom threshold is like, this is just good enough. But then if we're looking at exercises that are like, okay, biomechanically, this is pretty good. The difference between pretty good and like freaking great is, is really small. Like mm-hmm. there's a much bigger difference between, yeah, good enough and good than there is between pretty good and great, right? Mm-hmm. So there's like, there's this point of diminishing returns as we approach perfect, especially if we are ticking off all of those other things, right? Now, again, this comes down to how specific the goal is, right? So like, if you were talking about, can I get hypertrophy exactly where I want it? Well, then the specificity of that exercise, the threshold for how good your exercise selection is all of a sudden gets raised. If we're just saying, well, in general, can a person get like, you know, can their legs get thicker, you know? Um, yeah. Well then yeah, just do lower, lower body things. And like something, something will grow, something will add diameter to your thighs. If you're just doing, you know, even if you're just like, you know, squatting and deadlifting, whatever, something, something will grow, but to say, Hey, I want to, I want to grow my adductor magnus. Well, it's like, okay, well then we're probably going to need to do exercises that are more favorable to that. If we want that specifically to grow. So it raises the threshold of how good that exercise selection is. If your specificity is there. And I'm not trying to dance around your question. I'm just trying to say like, it just kind of depends on the specificity. Yeah, no, so, it's a pretty general question. Yeah. So I would say like, well, can a person get there? And I would say, well, one, it depends on how far away their exercise is from optimal. And are they, are they getting everything else at least to its threshold? Right. So I'd say if you're getting every, like, if you're getting everything else good, then you don't have to be as neurotic at, of any one variable. Right. And I think that's an important thing because people choose, they choose one of those things usually, right. They're like, okay, I'm the, I'm the execution or exercise, special exercise guy, or I'm the volume guy, or I'm the, you know, over recover nutrition guy, or I'm (laughs) like the, they, they pick one of those things and they get attached and they get neurotic at that. And I think what happens is a lot of times people, they neglect the other variables, or at least they neglect them to the point where it's like, look, you're chasing after a fraction of a percent in this category. When you have low hanging fruit in another category that could actually get you far better results. So, and this is coming from somebody that like, I make a living teaching the nuances of biomechanics and program design, um, which are all those things close to optimal, right? And here I am telling you guys that they're not that important, but I mean, I like them. I think they are important, but they're not important at, at the expense or the neglect of the other things. You have to be balanced in your approach. Um, And I think that's where that's why I don't like the, well, this exercise is a 10. And so if anything else, you will get less results. One, I'll just say, I don't think any of Doug's exercises are a 10 out of 10 in terms of a quality stimulus. Right. And that's where like, we would differ on like the application side of things. But also I would say um, if he's basing his exercises on efficiency, that doesn't actually mean that they're going to be any more stimulatory, right? right? So for instance, there's no, there's nothing to say that you know, his one lat exercise or chest exercise is going to be more stimulatory than another. He's just trying to make it more isolated um, per se with the efficiency standpoint, the, what it, what he terms as anatomical motion, you know, is what we, you know, would be something where it's like, that's another thing that we would agree on principle wise. And that like, yeah, if I want to train this thing, then I should move kind of how the anatomy works. Right. And that's what I would say would be the next area where it's like, yeah, I, we agree with that on principle, but in terms of application, 
not even in the same ballpark. Like, I just don't think that, uh, uh, how do I, how do I say this? I just don't think that Doug looks at anatomy the way that we look at anatomy, which is 3d with, you know, considering the joints and the structures and all of that stuff together, the different muscle divisions, for example, I mean, for one thing right there, like, I mean, if you don't understand the different muscle divisions and that those would actually all require different paths of motion, then I don't know how much depth in your anatomy you're going and his lat pull in, for example, like this exercise, like it's not zero lats, right. But if we were going to say a 10 out of 10 was the best possible lat exercise. And we were trying to think of like, okay, well, what would make a, a good lat exercise? Like, well, okay. Um, it would probably go through a decent amount of range of motion. Um, it should move in the, like in the anatomical motion or the, the path of motion for the lats, and it should have a, a decent resistance curve to it right? That, that, those would probably be three things that we can say, those would all like make a good exercise. And then it should be something that is stable enough that we can load it well. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the lat pull and exercise is an example of a lat exercise that goes through probably not even 50% of its, of the lats range of motion. Cause the lats get stretched by coming around the rib cage, the lats and the, the pecs, your torso muscles, go figure, use your torso as basically an anatomical pulley. Um, because we are sagittal creatures that move most front to back. We don't like, you don't, we don't, we don't oompa loompa it like sideways, you know, to get from point A to point B we've evolved this very sagittally dominant structure yeah. in all these tissues. Right. And at pretty much every research study that looks at arm path for pulling shows that, well, a narrower grip and more of a sagittal pull tends to be more lat dominant and anything that's flared out or wide tends to be more upper back and, and rear delt dominant. Um, so in that exercise, we're not going into full flexion and we're not coming across the body. So there's very minimal stretch in the lats. We're not getting very much range of motion and the actual path of motion for the lats. Like if you don't know if, like if you're on YouTube, you'll see this, but I'm bringing my arm like across the inner front in my body. Like this would actually be a, a lat stretch, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, I mean, even if you go to a crappy, you know, stretching foam rolly class or whatever, when it's time to stretch the lats, they don't pull your arm out to the side, right? You like reach across the body and like turn and that's, that's yeah. how you stretch your lats. Right. And, you know, I mean, that's closer than the, the, the pull in type exercise. And then when we look at, you know, the resistance curve of that, um, because I've actually had this conversation with Doug through email. Um, and I was like, dude, that's literally the opposite of the strength curve of the lats, right? Like mm-hmm. we can, we can, we physically measure these things. Um, we have you know, like a, a forced gauge, right? So you can basically do these exercises and then we control the, the speed of the cable, um, basically trying to make the equivalent of an isokinetic machine for all yeah. of these motions so that we can actually look at cool. what is the actual strength curve with this, all things included. Right. And you are way stronger out here than you are down here, like mm-hmm. way, way, way stronger. Right. Um, so that exercise in terms of a resistance curve would be, we'll say unfavorable to the lats because it's the opposite. It's the most here and it's the least out here, right? This, when you're holding the cable there, it's, it's essentially nothing right at the, at the beginning of a, if it's just pulling your arm out. Are you um, saying that another lat exercise that you would prefer would have a different strength curve? Like, can you give an example, like a concrete example there? Yeah. So basically in order to accomplish a a better profile, we want something that would get a little bit lighter as you come into the short position. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing a, we'll say just, we'll just say a standard pull down because everybody knows what a standard pull down looks like, but you're just using an elbow path in front of your body. Mm -hmm. When you're in this position, right? Your lats are going to be pulling, not quite 90, but fairly straight down, but also the resistance is going to be 
almost like the moment arm will be almost the length of your humor. So it'd be really long. But then as you bring your arm down, everything gets closer to the shoulder. So it gets lighter at the bottom respectively. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's more heavy here, lighter here. And in general, that's kind of what we'd want. So we'd want something that was a little bit more challenging in the mid or towards the length of position and would drop off a little bit. Now you don't need to like, I believe that there's reasons to use different resistance profiles for different goals or to complement other exercises and stuff like that. So that things aren't redundant. But if you only had one exercise, that's what you would want is you would want something that was close enough to the strength profile. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be not really far off, right? Like not completely opposite. So because the moment arm is so far out, like when you're like here, and mm-hmm. as it gets closer, this is technically a weaker position for the lat, but because the moment arm is smaller, it lines up better. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you basically, you want the weight to be harder where you're stronger and easier where you're, you're weaker. Cause mm-hmm. that way it's, it's more of a consistent challenge throughout the exercise. Right. So, but it doesn't have, when to you're out like this, are you not also, um, lessening the moment arm as you get closer to the body with the strength curve? No, it's, it's the, so, so when, when you're out, the cable is basically in line with your arm, mm-hmm. right? So, and your arm is going down. So the moment arm at the start of the pull-in is zero. Like there's like almost no load, Yeah. right? As you come down, the moment arm is now the cable and the distance. So the, basically the moment arm is its greatest at the bottom, right? Okay. So yeah, yeah, in, in, ter- in terms of profile, it's as bad as you could get, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, that's just, that's just the honest truth. Like, like now I don't want to say it's, it's as bad as you could get if you only had one exercise to keep it in that context, because there are instances where we will say, Hey, we actually want to use a resistance profile like that, but it's usually not for hypertrophy. It's usually actually more for a metabolic stimulus that we will use for, you know, body comp and conditioning things and stuff like that. We won't, we won't choose exercises like that when the goal is maximum hypertrophy. What would that you say when he, cause he'll, he'll use this example in almost all of his podcasts where he says the decline bench is better because if you stick your arms out and do this and flex, you can't really flex your incline. Like he'll say like, Oh, touch here and you're not going to feel it. And if you kind of go down, you really feel it. I don't know if you've seen him. He's given that example. I've seen on many podcasts. I don't, I don't know yeah. what your response that would be. Well, um, one, I don't know that that's always true um, in terms of the feel it thing. Um, and two that doing exercises that are unloaded and just like positioning an arm is not a good way of act like, because you're just dependent on what, what is a person doing when they hold their arm up? Right. The only resistance is down. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, okay, if I come in here and I pull in whatever, I just mentally decide to pull in is, is what's going to work. Right. Cause <laughs> I have no resistance to overcome other than my arm. So as an assessment tool, that's garbage. As a rebuttal to that, if you actually just say, hey, people, instead of like doing this and then coming in like this, which is like making two motions, your clavicular pecs run at an angle upward towards the clavicle. So if you actually just bring your arm in and then up, probably every single person will feel their clavicular pecs, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's actually, so it's like you're comparing one motion for pecs and then you're comparing another motion that you're intentionally making bad to make a point. And so, I mean, that I, there are a lot, there's a pattern of those things that I, that I well, see. Yeah. I mean, similar with the squat, like he kind of chose a weight that it was like, well, if you use this amount, it's only this, but again, like you could have just chosen a heavier squat yeah. weight to compare right. it to. So, and I, th- 
I think that's more fair to say, hey, you know, one, do the math right so that the number, because the numbers will be much closer together, right? You know, otherwise it's like, well, if you fudge the math in both directions, which he does because he, in his leg extension example, he also uses basically like the full length of the lower limb. And that's not true. The moment arm is wherever the contact point is of the shin pad, Mm -hmm. right? Which isn't the full length of your tibia, right? Like unless you chop off your foot and like hook it to the bottom, right? right? Then you don't do leg extensions with the full length of your tibia. You probably do them with like two thirds of your tibia, mm-hmm. right? And if you do a heel, heel elevated squat, you probably also get close to that. And it, I mean, there's just so many flaws. Like, I mean, we, we, we could sit and we could do a 30 minute video on just one of those examples and go through all of it. So like, for instance, that whole principle of like the shin going forward, even if the math was correct, in order to actually say, well, how close is that to like the maximal leverage a person could get on their quads? It would require that their tibia and their quads be the exact same length in every individual. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case because guess what? If you got a longer femur than you do a tibia, well, then if you're doing a hack squat, you might be able to be way more efficient because you have a longer lever when you're using the femur than you do the tibia. Right. So I think, well, I think the, uh, one of the problems that you get when you have very dogmatic people and then you have these like camps, right? Yeah. So they're all their Mm -hmm. followers and they come into your comment sections and stuff. And so um, at an extreme level of this, I had this with this guy, John Jaquish. I don't know if you've seen him, but he, he, uh, Mm -hmm. he, he sells this band thing called X3 and it's like it literally, so it's like a a bar and then it has these like high strength bands. And he says yeah. how it's it's three times the muscle growth based on this one study that absolutely does not actually say three times the muscle growth and all the, like, it's just total nonsense. So, mm-hmm. um, but he was on the podcast and he's one of the only people I've ever had on the podcast where like, wow, like we're actually talking face to face. And like, I just, I don't like believe that you believe what you're saying <laughs> kind of a thing, you know? So anyway, but the point was like, people are coming in and they're like, how could you make a video on your opinion of this when you haven't tried the system? And it's like, you don't need to try everything to have a basic understanding, number one, of what they're saying, but then two, to have an evaluation of how something works, right? I mean, there's a million things out there. You don't have to try, let's say, the carnivore diet to think like, ah, maybe I'm not just going to eat meat for the next 50 years of my life. Like there are other studies that we can look at and whatever. So the reason I bring him up is because if, if they said to me, in that example, hey, band training can be, you know, a good alternative. And this product is good while you're traveling. It's easy. It's good for home. That would be one thing. But it's like, no, this is the best way. And then these people who do the routine who are generally new to lifting, or like, maybe they've already gained muscle and they're maintaining, they say, well, I'm doing this and, and I'm getting results. And it's like, that's great. But this person is claiming that it's literally the best by far not just that it's an okay alternative. And I think you see, and again, I'm not in any way saying that Doug is like a a con artist. It's a similar vein of, they're not just saying, hey, maybe to avoid injuries, lighten the load and maybe, you know, use exercises that are less injurious. It's actually saying, this is clearly the best way to do it, which is totally different. And and then the people who are giving me these anecdotes of, well, I switched to this method and, and now I'm not injured. It's like, well, I'm not surprised you're not as injured if you're using one fifth the weight and you're doing slow and control, but that's, that's not his only point. His, his main point that I think a lot of us disagree with is that this is the best way to go about it. Yeah. You know, and I, I think, you know, 
like I said, I agree with some of the principles of like, yeah, if you want to train a muscle properly, then you should find a way to, you know, move the way that that tissue moves. And yeah, you should try and find a way to bias the loading towards that more. I agree with those things. Um, but I don't think that the, well, the, the exercises, um, necessarily live up to that. And then I also think that while we can say some of these things generally, it's important to have that asterisk of like, but the context will be, the context will vary, you know, whether that is true for most individuals. Right. And full disclosure for any, because I know like when Doug does his, Doug will probably do a response video to like this video or whatever. Right. He likes to do that. Um, I have been, you know, I purchased and went through Doug's entire program because we mm -hmm. audit everything that we can. Right. So it's important for us to know, what our students are coming in with so that we can communicate with them. So yeah. So like, yeah, Doug's all in program or whatever it is, like the whole thing. Yeah. So we've been through the book, been through all of wow. the videos, like all and you that mentioned stuff. you reached out so, to him. Did you, so what was the conversation like? Well, so somebody, so the, it started as somebody had sent me a message, you know, and they were just like, Hey, what about the lat pulling? Cause it basically goes against every principle that we teach for lats, you know, from anatomy to resistance or whatever. And I basically like, you know, there was like in an Instagram story, I had no idea who Doug was at the point in time. I was like, look, if I had to design a pulling towards the body exercise, but it was the least amount of like lat bias possible. That's what I would do. So I don't know why you would do that exercise because it's like, if I took everything that I knew and I tried to design like the crappiest way to train lats, that's where it would be. Um, and <laughs> I guess somehow that got back. Doug emailed me about the, uh, about the pull-in and he sent me like a, a, a small book of things um, with like his 16 factors or whatever, and like lifting them off or whatever. And I was like, well, respectfully, Doug, like the, the like the eight arguments that you gave here like seven of them this is this exercise is the exact opposite of those because he like one of them was like oh yes it's a it's the it's a, a lengthened fully lengthened of the muscle or full range of motion i'm like well no it's not it's in the resistance profile is is opposite and no it doesn't follow the anatomical motion like and i'm like and no the research does not does not support using wide things right and it's like i'm not going to say it's zero lats but it is closest like it is close to one of the crappiest lat exercises that i could think of now if somebody has not like if somebody's been doing a bunch of garbage back training where they've just been like leaning and swinging and everything and all of a sudden now they're put in a in a position where they don't have those options and they just have to actually control pulling down, they might feel their lats in a, in a, in a different way, right? They might even get a little bit more of the lower portion of the lat if they haven't been doing any other exercises that were good. Right. So it's like, okay, these people that are like, Oh, but it worked for me, but I'm like, but where did you come from? Right. right? Like, I mean, how, like how bad was it before? Right. Cause maybe you went from, uh, on a scale of one to 10, maybe you went from a one exercise to a two exercise, right? Or maybe the exercise you were doing before was so bad that we wouldn't even call it a lat exercise. Mm -hmm. Like it was just like, you know, it was just, you know, fling and swing. And you're like, oh, well now I have to do this thing that, you know, doesn't really give me that option or whatever. Like, like a good example is, um, so back in my, you know, days when I was working with a bunch of bodybuilders or whatever, um, you know, I worked with Ben Pakulski for a little while and he, you know, he had his MI40 program, mm -hmm. um, which I mean, 
it like it had a ton of good feedback, but I mean, the program itself, there was literally nothing special to the program. It wasn't even a good program, but what it forced people to do was actually to use tempo, which actually forced people to have a little bit better form. Right. And so the, the, the number the of people you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so the number of people that just went from like having no discipline in their reps to all of a sudden having that, of course, it was a huge, like difference for them. Yeah. Right. Um, but for the people that were already trading good, it might've actually been a step back from what they were doing. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's very easy to find enough people to support something that all they were doing is coming from a worse place to, yeah. to a better place. Right. Especially if they don't know how to properly evaluate exercises. And this is one of the, the biggest obstacles for us in terms of when we're, we're, we're trying to help people challenge their thoughts about exercises is that, Oh, well, but I, but I feel it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there's, there's a lot of reasons that we get a sensation in an exercise and mechanical tension is not even close to the top of the list, right? Like the majority of the neurofeedback that we get is negative feedback, right? Which is, you know, I mean, you have a degree in exercise science. You probably know a little bit about this, right? Like the nervous system does not give you an, an all good, right? It'd be like mm-hmm. the equivalent of driving and a big thing would pop up to just let you know, things were working all the time, whenever they were working. Mm-hmm. Like, no, you have a check engine light for when things are wrong. Right. And all sorts of other lights for when other things are wrong or, you know, you need to check them, but when everything's good, you know, you just, you just drive, right. You just get in and you just, you just go. And your body is very similar to that. Um, so good exercises don't necessarily give us the highest degree of sensation, right? Like if you're really, if you're really honed in, you can, you can start to feel when something is working, when something is tensing, but it's not the, like the crampiness that you get with some of these very like weird exercises that are actually either unstable or compromised joint positions. Right. So it's, it's, it's very easy to give people, we'll say, or for people to actually guide themselves towards crappier exercises, if they don't understand anything about mechanics and the only thing they're going for is feel. And so they're just chasing an ambiguous sensation, whether they know it's good or not. Right. Because you could be like, Oh, I feel this more, but you're actually going to, you're actually going towards the direction of being more injurious because you're actually like feeling the co-contraction in your body, trying to resist that motion because it's not a good motion. I imagine it's very tough for, I mean, certainly a lay person, but even somebody who's just kind of casually into lifting to be able to parse this out because, you know, you just yes. mentioned how, okay. So in his example, he said to you, Hey, here's these 16 reasons and mm-hmm. whatnot. And you were able to say, okay, even, and I don't even know if you think those 16 reasons on their own are valid, but you were able to say, even if these were valid, that doesn't apply like seven of these or whatever it was don't apply to this exercise. And if anything, they're the opposite. Mm-hmm. I doubt many people could look at that and say, you know what, he's suggesting this exercise and that actually doesn't apply with this principle. Probably very yeah. few. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the physics example is, I mean, cause you can go on uh, like Khan Academy and watch a free YouTube video on moment arms. Mm-hmm. And then you can watch any of Doug's videos and be like, yeah, that's, that's not right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, um, so there's definitely a bit, a bit of cognitive dissonance in that group. And I, I mean, I think you kind of see that in everything, like, you know, people just, they want the answer. They don't want to then have to do like an internal audit of like, okay, was this true or whatever? Do I need to like, see, do I need to bring my skill set up enough, you know, to know that I can audit these things? Yeah. yeah. So it's very easy to say, Hey, these are principles or to say, Hey, physics is true or say, Hey, that biomechanics is true. And it's a very like 
small rant, but it's a very frustrating point for me because um, like I'm to the point where I'm thinking about removing biomechanics, the, the term mm-hmm. out of our course, because there's enough people in the industry that are saying, well, this is biomechanics and mm-hmm. they have no credentials. They're like, it's just garbage, but they're throwing around that word. Same thing for physics, right? Like people yeah. just throw around, they throw around these terms, you know, any sort of scientific term as if using the term somehow makes it correct or, or validates it. Right. Yeah. Um, and this is just an instance where it's like, okay, anatomically, these things aren't correct from a physics perspective. There's clearly some errors in here on the principal perspective. I can agree with a chunk of these. Right. And I think, again, like I said, that's where most people it's like, well, yeah, like we can agree that like, this is a generally good thing. Um, but then it's like, but how do we accomplish that good thing? That's where then, you know, there's a bit of a difference. So like in terms of all of the exercises that are in the, uh, what is the brig 20 and Mm -hmm. there's like some substitutes or whatever. Like if I were to act, if I were to have my own scale of like, okay, what is the 10 out of 10 exercise for this muscle group, which isn't something that we would do because I don't think you could rate something without having a goal and an individual. Right. But we'll put it this way. The odds that any of those would end in my you know top 10 are going to be very, very small, right? Like the leg extension, we, you know, we can agree on that. Um, his chest press of like, say, Hey, a, a decline motion is a, is a good motion for chest. Well, I think, yeah, decline motion is good for chest, but it needs to be done. Not the way that it's taught there. It needs to be done tighter to the rib cage because that's the way the pecs and the lats work. Like they like, it's, it's not out like this with your elbows stuck out to the side and then, then pressing down. Right. Um, and I don't, like anybody that anybody that actually looks at physics could all you got to do is look at the side of the body to see that wow the physics don't work very well all of a sudden when you're doing these exercises out to the side in terms of in terms of you know the the pecs having a good mechanical advantage and being able to um, flex the arm and it and adduct the arm so it's like that's where I'm skeptical in terms of I would say it is there actual expertise behind this information or are we just throwing around those words? If that makes, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and I'm not trying to sling mud, but that, I mean, that is one of the things that frustrates me in this industry is the people that basically diminish the terms that we're using by throwing a bunch of bad information behind them. Right. Yeah. So I'm not actually, I'm not sure what Doug's background actually is not to say that just because somebody has a degree, it, yeah. it you know, validates, but I'm, I'm not sure. I know some of the people who, I think were like references for his book that, I don't know. Sometimes I, I find when people um, it, it's just like, they're not necessarily relevant. Like, yeah. Like, like the, I, like the NASA guy. Yeah. Like, right. okay. And was maybe one was like an archeologist or something. I don't know. Like things were, yeah. or maybe anthropologists, but like, but yeah, it's, it's specifically the, the NASA guy, but I see this a lot where I'm just like, all right, this person just said they liked your book. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, testimonials are, are great, but like, yeah, I mean, you, you need to know who that testimonial is coming from and whether it, whether it's relevant or whatnot. And, and I mean, we get PhDs in our field, like PhDs in kinesiology, right? Mm-hmm. PhDs in um, human performance and movement mechanics and all sorts of stuff that come to our courses. And it's like a complete, like life-changing experience for yeah. them or whatever. Right. Um, and it's because, well, part of that is just the age of the curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you, you, you could have gotten a degree in something, you know, 10 years ago, and basically everything that you've learned could be like pretty skeptical at this point in time, yeah. you know, especially as young as the fitness industry is, um, you know, and the other, I mean, so it's like, 
I don't think that, uh, like I, I would never promote our courses and our stuff by just saying, well, okay, this person here that, you know, you have no idea what they know or whatever, like, you know, says yeah. it's good. I'll use our students and be like, Hey, did you have a good experience? Was it valuable? Do you feel more confident? Like those are the things that we yeah. present in our testimonials. I'm not like, Hey, can you, can you come tell these people that uh, our information is correct and everybody else's information is wrong so that, you know, you that have been, ex- you know, <laughs> yeah, who, it, nobody knows your background. Like they'll trust well, you. It's <laughs> also, it's interesting when you talk to people who are like truly experts. So do you know, uh, Dr. Nicholas Radimus? I do not. So he is the editor in chief for the journal of strength and conditioning. He was okay. my professor kind of mentor in undergrad. And, you know, I, I did very well in school, but there were times where like, we eventually got on like a more friendly basis and we went out to lunch. And I just remember like some of the stuff he'd go into, I'm like, dude, I don't even know <laughs> what you're talking about right now. And, and like my doctor, I'm a doctor of dental surgery. There are special specialists within that that I'll hear them go over, you know, I'll go to like a CE course and it's just like, wow, like this was not taught to me at all in school. So, uh, you know, as, as they say in a lot of sports, there's levels to this. Yeah. You know, and I think, I mean, what I, what I'll suggest to people, like, you know, if, if you're, you're self-interested in education is it's really important to have a broad base and a bunch of things so that at least you can have like a small BS you know, meter yeah. and like every, yeah. like, so it's like, okay, know a little bit about mechanics. So you can understand the exercise selection technique pile of thing, know a little bit about physiology, you know, and some research so you can understand the, the volume and effort side of things, know a little bit about nutrition and recovery so that you can kind of understand that thing so that you don't just get sold complete BS. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, but you better damn sure be a real good expert in one of those fields. If you're going to promote yourself as like, Hey, I'm teaching this thing and I'm teaching it as like the, the absolute science, you know, whatever. I think, um, what was it? The, it was the end of the video, um, that he did in response to Dr. Mike, where like, there was just like 15 minutes of like self high fives and pats mm. on the max. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, <laughs> I was like, dude, like, if you just, if you just, if you just do the math, right, then you won't need to be like, but this guy likes me, Um, you know, and this guy likes my book. And I'm like, dude, when I was a young trainer, people thought the shit that I was doing back then was like fucking genius. And now I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, that was trash. That was absolute trash. But there were plenty of people that I could have, you know, got to say like, oh, it's the great, it's the best. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I do have a feeling Doug will see this. Maybe not Doug. If you're watching, you're welcome to email me. We can talk about it. If you want to have another rebuttal. Um, any closing remarks, Kasten, that you wanted to anything we didn't touch on? No, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I think we covered enough things that it kind of gets the conversation rolling. Yeah. Um, you know, I had reached out to Doug, uh, to, to debate this stuff like with him directly and, uh, did not get a response. Okay. Um, so that's why it's like, well, all right, if you guys, you know, I think the best way to do this is, you know, through conversations where at least somebody can be critical of your, of your point of view, you know, so gotcha. thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, and I would just say like, for people listening, like education is you like educating yourself is the way to protect you from, you know, other stuff. Like, so actually having a base foundation of physics and anatomy and stuff like that. I mean, that would help people be a little bit more critical of things like this, in the future, right? Because that's that's the comments that I see the most on anybody that has has spoken out here. It's like, well, oh, you haven't read the book, or oh, it's it's physics. You just have to whatever. And I'm like, if you're saying it's just physics, 
then you probably are the person that should be looking at the physics yeah. and the math or, or, or it's like, yeah. Oh, it's, these are anatomical. Like don't just repeat what the guru says, right? Like, unless you've actually double checked to see that it's right. Don't just step in the shoes of somebody else. That's just saying something and regurgitating that um, because then all you're doing is just encouraging more people to go into something thoughtlessly. So, yeah. all right. That's my, that's my last <laughs> rant of, of, of the day. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, anything sure. else? Yeah. Well, uh, so what's your Instagram, what's website, all that. Um, so we are on Instagram and YouTube, uh, and it's just N1 education and, uh, our courses are on, uh, M1.education website. There's no.com. Uh, and our membership site is M1.training. You can follow me at coach underscore Kassem. It's K A S S E M. Um, but just be aware that if you follow me, then you're going to get all of my BS as well. But if you follow the brands, then you're just going to get straight, you know, exercise stuff. So if you like a no nonsense thing, then, you know, go follow my professional account. Um, if you enjoy my off-putting offending personality, then, you're, you're welcome to try following me as well. Awesome. Thanks, man.